1: There are conservative parties everywhere, but the, the Republican Party is, is the only party in the world that uh, hasn't reconciled itself uh, to the, the rise of the, the welfare state and the, the regulatory state.
2: Hello, welcome to Sir Glanch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I asked for ideas on people to interview about polarization and identities, and in particular, the ways that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are fundamentally different from each other. Why have forces that are affecting both um, led to very different outcomes? Why did the Republican Party nominate uh, Donald Trump in 2016, whereas the Democratic Party went with a much more traditional candidate? Why does the Republican Party seem to prefer shutdowns and Seem to be more polarized, both in tactics and ideology, than, than the Democratic Party has become. Um, what's behind that? The expert on this is a guy named Matt Grossman, um, who, along with uh, Dan Hopkins, both of them are political scientists, wrote a really fantastic book um, a couple of years back called Asymmetric Politics: Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats, and it's about the fundamental differences in the two parties' coalitions, the way those coalitions look at the world, and how those differences explain what we see all around us today. Um, Grossman, he's got a political science podcast called Political Research Digest with the Niskanen Center. He is really, really, I don't usually recommend people's Twitter feeds, uh, but I really do recommend his. I think it is maybe the best way to follow new developments and new papers in political science. But this is very much a conversation trying to help me um, and hopefully you uh, think through what is really different in the Democratic and Republican parties. Why have they Acted and operated in different ways in this era, and how fundamental are those differences? Um, I'm not sure I am bought into every piece of Matt's theory, but I think it is really the starting point for trying to understand this topic. And so I hope you enjoy it. Um, my email is always as her show at vox.com. Here is Matt Grossman. Matt Grossman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So, why are Democrats and Republicans so different? Are they? Let's ask the big question. Let's go right to
1: it. I I think there is a a longstanding set of differences uh, between the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, And we, my co-author, David Hopkins, and I started kind of listing them. And we decided that uh, they really amounted to one sort of global difference, that the Republican Party uh, is a vehicle of a symbolic ideological movement, whereas the Democratic Party is a coalition of social groups. And there are incentives for each party to kind of continue on. Uh, their traditional way. Republican leaders by attracting uh, loyalty to eternal values and reactions to to social change, and and Democratic leaders by seeking concrete government action uh, through kind of a catalog of specific policies to respond to each of the
2: group identities in their coalition. Okay. So I want to push this because I think this is both a very interesting definition of it, and I want to understand where the boundaries of it really are. So how do you distinguish? an ideological coalition from from a social group coalition. I look at the Republican Party and I know a lot of people talk a big game about limited government and so on, but it seems to me it's a party that has, you know, the Club for Growth, which wants to lower taxes on, on rich people in general, not only rich people, but but rich people. It's got the Chamber of Commerce, which is concerned about business interests. It's got a huge anti-immigration block. It had for a long time neoconservatives who worried about a, a hawkish foreign policy abroad. I mean, isn't this a coalition of of groups that want certain things? Some of them, you know, based around their identity, some of them based around, you know, their transactional material interests, some of them based around ideology. Well, there's certainly interest
1: groups attached to the Republican Party, uh, but they don't represent uh, the, the the social groups, the blocks of the, the party in uh, the electorate, uh, and uh, they seem to talk a whole lot more often uh, about uh, broad values and kind of eternal principles uh, than uh, specific policy aims to achieve uh, specific ends for Republican voters. Uh, so I, I don't want to say that uh, there are no aspects of the Republican Party that look like a social group coalition. And like likewise there are aspects of the Democratic party uh, that that look more like an ideological movement um, but this is a, a quite long-standing uh difference between the parties uh and and we see some
2: some ways that it's uh, likely to continue but but I guess this is my question to help me understand when does a social a coalition of groups coalesce into an ideological movement and when is what maybe looks like some like an ideological movement just actually a coalition of groups right this feels to me like a distinction we're making sort of sharply um but it 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 feels a little blurrier to me i mean democrats like as you say tons of groups in there you've got you know unions and the naacp and um you know justice democrats and all kinds of different players but you know i think a lot you know when you're on fox news people step back it's like it's liberalism and so to some people, it looks like one big ideology. So, so what is the line between these? Like what when does a a group fall on, you know, this is a broad ideology versus this is a bunch of groups who have come together in a kind of transactional coalition to advance their goals? Well, traditionally, uh, the, each party has kind of seen the others more like
1: a mirror image of itself. So yes, on Fox News, they, they see it as a broad uh, liberal movement that's uh, trying to use government uh, for its own uh, ends, uh, whereas the, the Republican Party uh, is seen as just a, a bunch of uh, white people and business people advancing their own interests uh, by uh, lots of, of Democrats. Um, so I don't want to say that there's, uh, you know, no, uh, no grounds to, to the the critique um, or that the parties don't don't ever change uh, but we we found a very uh, similar set of patterns uh, over over decades uh, in in our book and we see uh, many of them uh, continuing uh, I think one thing that has changed on the Democratic side is that the groups are getting a lot getting along a lot better uh, than they used to uh, you used to have uh, debates not just about priorities uh, within the party that you still have uh, but debates about actual policy positions uh, that that the that the Democratic Party was was going to take, um, and those have calmed down considerably. So, in some ways, that is uh, drawing from uh, more uh, of an ideological uh, attempt uh, to unify the the groups. Uh, but it but it still turns out, at least in campaigns and in governance, uh, to look a whole lot more like uh, going down the the list of uh, priorities for each uh, party uh, member uh, than it does uh, like uh, the Republicans who who are trying to. Uh, reorient uh, government uh, on sort of a global scale.
2: So there's a a story that I think is pretty dominant within, you know, both a lot of the political journalism literature and the political science literature, that we've had a lot more polarization in the past 50 years, a lot more sorting of the two parties into more distinct ideological camps. But amidst all that, Republicans have gone much further to the right. The Democrats have gone to the left. Um, Do you you buy that basic story? Well, it is certainly true in in Congress
1: uh, that the Republican Party has moved uh, further to the right than the Democratic Party has has moved to the left, and there's more uh, remaining uh, moderates in the Democratic Party than than the Republican Party. Um, I don't want to say that that is also automatically true of the electorate um, because it really depends on on how you how you define the positions of, of voters. Uh, voters are are mixed, <laughs> uh, and so uh, it's actually sort of the Democratic. Democrats who who hold more consistently uh, liberal uh, policy positions, and the Republicans who more consistently think of themselves as being on the right, uh, and think of politics as a, a conflict over visions rather than a, a conflict over groups. Um, so there's been uh, asymmetric movement uh, at the the
2: the policymaker level, uh, but
1: but it, things look different at the electorate
2: level. One of the things that I, I wonder about at that policymaker level. Is there used to be this view that the Republican Party was this organized, machine-like uh, institution, and Democrats were this disorganized, ridiculous coalition of groups who couldn't get along? So there's the old Will Rogers quote, "You know, I don't belong to an organized political party; I'm a Democrat." There is the longtime saw in politics that Republicans fall in line and Democrats fall in love, and in the past couple of years, it has seemed to me to be basically the exact opposite. It Republicans seem very disorganized. They keep like knocking out their own speakers because a job is impossible. They got the party got taken over by Donald Trump and basically a hostile external takeover. The, the party does not seem to have control over its own interest groups. It seems much more, say, controlled by Fox News and it has any control over Fox News and talk radio. I'm I'm curious how you think about the, that question of internal organization, because on the other side, you have I mean, Democrats have been pretty united. They took a lot of very tough votes in the Obama era. Nancy Pelosi tends to have pretty good control over caucus. And even, you know, very far from Boehner and Ryan, you know, getting pushed out like she lost the majority and then came back and held it again in the speakership. Something seems to have changed in how capable the parties are of internally coordinating. And I'm curious, again, if you think that's a true story, but if it is what you think that change is.
1: Well, and that's the intellectual history of our idea: is that it's it's not at all a new idea. Uh, People have been saying that the Republican Party is is more ideologically oriented, the Democratic Party is is a more diverse coalition uh, for decades. Uh, But in fact, they connected that to the outcomes that you just described. So they connected it to the idea that okay, Republicans are going to fall in line, and Democrats are are going to be disordered. And then when those outcomes changed, uh, the the sort of idea that the the parties were different. kind of lost favor uh, in, in academia. Uh, and so part of our resuscitation of the idea is to say, just because uh, people uh, are, are forming a party around uh, ideological views doesn't necessarily mean that they are all going to uh, get along and follow uh, the leadership. In fact, there's that kind of a long tradition of, of distrust of, of one's own party uh, as not uh, standing uh, for the principles of, of conservatism, uh, and uh, just because there's a group called coalition does not necessarily mean uh, that it uh, will uh, not uh, form uh, issue positions that, that each side can kind of uh, take as, as a part of a log rolling arrangement. Uh, so we think that the outcomes of the difference between the party uh, have changed, uh, but the, the sort of underlying uh, causes uh, for those uh, differences uh, historically remain.
2: How does your theory there account for Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump is someone who has not traditionally been what we would have thought of as a movement conservative, it does not, even in the primary he ran in, he would routinely stray in his public remarks from conservative views. He is somebody who came from the outside and like beat a lot of conservatives and mocked a lot of past conservative heroes. And yet he took for the party and has been extremely, extremely popular in it, which suggests to me, well, one read people have had on that is like, actually, it's not an ideologically conservative party. It's a white identity politics party. And Donald Trump has a better definition of what conservative actually is than Republican elites have had. And so, like, what we've just seen is a a redefinition of conservatism Um, or other people have different views. but. This idea of um, Republicans being a party that is much more committed to this ideology we think of as conservatism, it's a little bit hard for me to square that with uh, the, the, the Donald Trump Takeover.
1: Well, yeah. Let me say that we, uh, you know, we did not uh, predict uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, victory, uh, and we think that there's, you know, certainly some idiosyncratic uh, factors uh, I- involved in in his uh, victory in the Republican primary, and that uh, most of his the explanations for his victory in the general election uh, are sort of consistent with with long term political science about the the, the parties each having a, a good chance to to win general elections. Um, so we're in no ways trying to be kind of the explanation. Um, for 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 Trump, um, but I would say that there are, uh, you know, there are areas of consistency and there are uh, real uh, breaks. Um, I think in some ways we've overestimated uh, some of the breaks. So uh, certainly in in law and order rhetoric, uh, in the the racial impact on conservatism, in the long term uh, Republican shift uh, against uh, immigration, uh, in the increasing role of conservative media as the arbiter uh, of uh, conservatism in the Party. In all of those ways, uh, Donald Trump is, is a continuation of, of long-running uh, trends in, in the Republican Party. Uh, he really stands out when it uh, comes to, to trade policy, um, but it's not clear that that was sort of ever a, a big piece of uh, what held um, conservatism uh, together. Uh, another. Thing I think I would just just note now is that we we don't know yet um, how much uh, Donald Trump will will change the party. If we were sitting having this conversation in the in the George W. Bush administration, we might say, okay, they've they've kind of moderated on health and education. Uh, they're uh, sort of come to come to terms with their old isolationism and their their four nation building abroad. Um, there's a rise in neoconservatives in the coalition relative to, to others. Um, But all of those turned out to be uh, quite temporary, Uh, and so we just don't know yet uh, how much of uh, Donald Trump changes uh, he's going to bring to the party and and how much um, we'll see uh, a continuation. And one sign, I think, that it it may not uh, last forever, is that he really hasn't taken much control of the Republican congressional agenda. It really looked uh, about the same over the last two years as it would have looked under any of uh, the other Republican
2: primary candidates. They But, but yeah. isn't that because he's lazy? <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, he did he did just make them shut down the government for a wall they didn't want and a shutdown they opposed. It seems to me he could control it. He's just like, you know, it's hard to control the Republican agenda when he spends 60% of your day in executive time.
1: <laughs> it, it, certainly, he's an ineffective um, leader and an inexperienced president, um, and th- there's no doubt about that. Um, but he he has brought people into the administration who have had uh, kind of more success in, in regulatory arenas, um, and they've pursued pretty much the, the traditional uh, Republican uh, policy agenda. Uh, he also ran in the same way that Republicans typically run on kind of a broad, unimplementable vision. Uh, so, even if he were a great at uh, implementing it, uh, there were never sort of enough uh, viable details with a path to victory in the campaign uh, that could really translate into successful governance. And that actually turns out to be pretty typical of uh, Republican uh, presidents. Where I think he he did not uh, follow some, some past practice that, that people haven't noticed as much is that most Republican presidents come in with at least some liberal things they want to do, uh, often because those liberal things are, are popular. Uh, so we we talked about George W. Bush coming in with um, extending uh, health coverage for prescription drugs and um, nationalizing uh, education standards uh, as being sort of ways that he changed the the Republican agenda. Um, and Donald Trump actually sort of didn't have a whole lot of those uh, ideas. Uh, and so uh, there was there was sort of no, none of the traditional diversion uh, that we get from the from the smaller government conservatism uh, to kind of try to do some popular things uh, in, in the administration.
2: But so here's here's my pushback on this, because I think that we get trapped a little bit in the Donald Trump we have, not the Donald Trump we might imagine we have. But Donald Trump, um, and it goes a bit back to what I was saying about him being lazy. Donald Trump did run with a bunch of liberal ideas under his belt, and they they appeared at that time to be popular. He said he wouldn't cut Medicaid or Social Security or Medicare, um, although he proposed many Medicaid cuts and, in, in, and eventually some Social Security ones too. He said that he wanted everybody to have health care and he wasn't going to be a traditional Republican. I mean, he obviously dropped that immediately. But one of the reasons I'm pushing on this is that, If the ideas of the Republican Party is a movement conservative organization, it is um, ideological and committed to this ideology we understand to be conservatism in a way the Democratic Party is not, you have Donald Trump, who has a lot of heterodoxies from what we traditionally understand of as conservatism. And he comes into office and, you know, it's a little hard to say what he could have done. I feel like I was much more convinced by the idea of the Republican Party as a conservative institution before it seemed to actually want Donald Trump. And it made me, one one thing that it did for me was it made the Republican Party look more like a coalition of bigger, but nevertheless, interest groups that had settled on a kind of mutually agreeable view of the party. It's like you had rich people who wanted lower taxes and less regulation. You had resentful whites who wanted, um, who did not want to see a big government going to help non-white people. You had, you know, neoconservatives who had a a foreign policy that was more aggressive. I mean, you you can stack a couple more things on top of that. But that, you know, when somebody came came in and said, actually, I'll give you a welfare state for white people the party was like, great, that's actually what we wanted all along. We don't care about the National Review saying you're not a conservative.
1: Well, the, the trend of sort of rallying behind uh, the president and and rallying against the Democratic president um, turns out to be actually a, a fairly long-running uh, pattern. There's an ar- article that just came out that showed that, you know, this this approval jump from Obama to Trump is is not only normal, but al- always bigger for Republicans. Uh, so th- there is a piece of it that's just, you know, we we trust our own in government and we fear... Uh, the uh, the opponents um I, I i think part of it would would help to to think about the republican party in international perspective which is you know there are there are conservative parties everywhere, but the the Republican Party is is the only party in the world that uh, hasn't reconciled itself uh, to the the rise of the the welfare state and the the regulatory state, um, and maintains a, a vision at least in campaigning uh, that is that is the furthest right of any major party in the world. Uh, it's a it's a vision that is not capable of being implemented not just by Donald Trump but uh, just uh, w- one that that isn't uh, quite so uh, feasible and so yes Donald Trump has differences but I think a lack of connection between uh, the vision and the policy details uh, is is actually some some continuity Uh we're, we're having this even in even in his uh, you know highest priority of of border security um you know he has proposed something that is is entirely almost entirely symbolic uh didn't even really present a justification for the the details of the money to congress meanwhile Nancy Pelosi has uh, a very <laughs> well <laughs> well uh uh, run a set of, of ideas, and, and why have one when you can have twenty proposals for for border security? And it's actually the Democrats that have this uh, well thought out uh, policy agenda for uh, actually uh, achieving uh,
2: that uh, professed goal. I, I do want to put a pin in this because I want to come back to this idea of you know there being a real difference in how the two parties look at policy. But I, I want to take one more uh, one, one more beat on this question of. What I think is a fundamental question of what is conservatism, um, your your book relies very heavily on this idea that the American public is philosophically conservative and operationally liberal, that they like the idea of smaller government and personal responsibility and the, the things we associate with conservatism in theory. And then they want more Medicare spending and more Medicaid spending and, you know, more uh, liberal positions in, in, in practice. One of the frustrations I had reading the book is I often read descriptions of conservatism like that and they don't sound to me like what conservatism ever is that it's like maybe good branding but you were talking about donald trump on law and order that's not a smaller government um or george w bush invading iraq um and just a, a generally more aggressive and expansionary foreign policy in general larger defense spending almost always is on that party's agenda and so You know, it often seems to me to be that conservatism is an interesting brand, but it has a lot of internal contradictions. And when you see something like that, you think, well, maybe it isn't the thing it says it is. Maybe it's something else. And so I think the thing I'm really trying to draw you out on here is, is Donald Trump actually a product of movement conservatism? And this is what movement conservatism really is? Or is Donald Trump a break from conservatism as the National Review said he was? Because if he's a break from conservatism, it seems to me to be a problem for your theory. If conservatism needs to be understood as something that it doesn't always admit to really being, then it, it seems very aligned.
1: I think it's a moment where we're realizing some, some of both. So we're going back and, and reinterpreting some conservative history in light of, of Donald Trump. And, and we're seeing more continuity in, in, in some cases. And so that's causing us to rethink about what, what conservatism is. Um, but I do want to just, just present the, <laughs> the evidence for this sort of view that uh, the Republican Party really does have a base of popular support um, and it uh, comes from these sort of broad sentiments that people have in the US uh, that they don't have in uh, other countries. So uh, even though actually Americans support lots of redistributive policies, um, they uh, don't support the the goal of redistribution or uh, the action of the government taking on the, the responsibility uh, nearly as much as, as people do uh, in other industrialized democracies, um, and that does give uh, Republicans a a base of of support. Um, But a small government is not the the only uh, way that that is expressed. There's also a broad uh, resistance to social change um, that uh, manifests in different specific uh, policy uh, areas, but can change quite readily uh, from, say, gay rights to immigration. If you you thought that it was about specific policy stances, you you would think that 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 was kind of an abrupt shift. if you thought it was just kind of a resistance to um, America changing too much, um, then uh, it uh, allows itself to to kind of manifest in in multiple ways. Uh, same thing with uh, national security. If you if you thought about it as just sort of a, a generic uh, might is right and uh, America uh, is is best, um, then you can kind of see the George W. Bush uh, foreign policy and the uh, Donald Trump foreign policy. Uh, uh, fit under one umbrella, uh, even though in policy terms, they're, they're almost, uh, at least as presented in campaigns, uh, quite uh, distinctive, if not opposite. Um, so uh, I think in, in that respect, in the, the fact that the, the policy details do not match uh, the broad vision and we sell uh, the broad vision to the public, um, that that is um, a, an area of consistency uh, between Trump and, and past Republicans. But when we do get to the details, I don't want to deny that uh, you you do see breaks uh, with Republican Party orthodoxy. I just think so far, the Republican Party orthodoxy in the policy world is is winning out uh, to to that.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Borough. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box.
2: So let me ask you a bit about the Democratic Party here, because even as the Republican Party, at least in my view, has moved towards rallying around a leader who is less what I would call ideologically conservative, as we've traditionally understood it, than have his than were his competitors or, or have past Republican presidents been. The Democratic Party actually seems to me to be moving in the opposite direction, that um, I, I would sort of mark this with Obama after Clinton. I remember that uh, interview Obama gave in Vegas where he said, you know, Clinton was not a transformational president, um, meaning that he sort of operated within the Reagan, you know, the era of big government is over framework. Um but uh, since then, you know, you'd Hillary Clinton, who was running, is running as much more of a liberal in 2016 than she'd been at other points in her career and certainly than her husband had been, uh, you know, whatever, 20 years before. And now, as I've begun covering the 2020 Democratic primary, there's this real like run to the left on Medicare for all and potentially abolishing private insurance. And, you know, say what you will about those ideas. I'm, I'm you know, like assessing them, I think, is a different podcast, but. It seems to me there is a much stronger urge in the Democratic Party right now to prove an ideological uh, fidelity up to Bernie Sanders, you know, remaking the label socialist into something, you know, I don't want to say Democrats are exactly competing to be for, but, but many are, are very proudly adopting. So it, it feels to me the Democratic Party is getting much more ideological.
1: Well, the Democratic Party is certainly moving leftward uh, in uh, policy positions. Um, I, sh- I should say we, we have to we have to wait a little bit to see how much um, it it sticks. Um, we do have a, a normal what we call a thermostatic pattern in American politics, where uh, public opinion moves uh, leftward under Republican presidents and conservative policymaking, and it moves rightward uh, under uh, Democratic presidents and liberal policymaking. Uh, and we saw that under Obama, and we're seeing that under Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, public opinion has overall, including independents, not just Democrats, has moved leftward on policy. It has also moved leftward on uh, ideological self-definition uh, and even some, some base values. Um, that, that gap is still there uh, where uh, it's the, the, the policy positions are still more popular uh, than, than the ideological label and, and rhetoric, um, but uh, both are, are moving uh, leftward. Uh, in the 2020 primary, there's no question uh, that many Many of the presidential candidates that have entered uh, so far uh, have reacted, I think, to both uh, Bernie's, um, at least uh, <laughs> people think that Bernie was successful. And so uh, they are in, in in some ways trying to appeal
2: to that constituency. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean that they think he was? I mean, from where Bernie Sanders was like 15 years ago, his performance in the 2016 primary, I think, like shocked a lot of Democrats. It, it seems to me to be very successful. Uh, it sounds to me like maybe you have a slightly counterintuitive view on it.
1: Oh, I, I don't mean to say that he, it wasn't a successful political project. Uh, it, it clearly was. I'm just saying we, we we don't. One could just interpret it as he was the he was the only candidate running against Hillary Clinton, and he got uh, you know he he managed to to assemble a coalition of people who didn't want Hillary Clinton as as the nominee. Um, but that's not how the presidential candidates are interpreting it. They're interpreting it as uh, there is a hunger uh, for a leftward move, uh, and that they need to to satisfy it. I will say it was a little bit different in in Congress. So we just had an election uh, where there were some some differences in uh, the candidates that were in in Democratic primaries. Um, but there's no evidence so far that um, voters preferred uh, the more liberal candidates uh, across the board uh, in House or Senate races. Um, and uh, many of the the candidates that looked like they they might be um, moving uh, leftward in Congress have so far kind of hedged their their. Base. Bets, um, and say, for example, joined both the Progressive Caucus and the New Democratic Caucus. So um, it, there is a, there is more sign of it in the presidential candidates than there is in in congressional uh, candidates uh, and in Congress. But but yes, I think there is a sign of it in both cases.
2: I think this is interesting data because if you're following Democratic politics just by reading political outlets and being on Twitter and or even just wa- you know watching Fox News from the other side, it's really like the Democratic Congressional, um, caucus the Democratic House. It is Nancy Pelosi, and then her her whip, um, <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and like those are the only two members of the entire House Democratic Caucus. And so, it does seem to me that there is a very strong. The dynamics in the media coverage and the sense people are getting from the media coverage is that there is this very sharp leftward swing in, in House Democrats. But you're saying that if you if you take a broader look at them, you don't see that as clearly.
1: Well, you, you didn't see it in the, in the primary uh, elections. You did see people taking on more liberal policy positions, um, but you didn't see the leftmost candidate uh, winning um, disproportionately in the primaries, whereas you did see a huge uh, gender effect, uh, a, a very big shift in uh, Democratic primary winners uh, toward uh, women uh, being more successful so th- there are some real changes in in the congressional races um, but but they don't quite match uh, the the story um, but as you say sometimes the the interpretation is more important uh, than than uh, the the sort of what the data say uh, voters are supporting um, and so I think that is why you're seeing uh, some of these 2020 candidates uh, really see uh, their uh, opening as as having to uh, appeal to to the left um, although I think Bernie Bernie Sanders might, at least he hasn't entered officially yet as of this podcast, but um, I think he's in some ways an exception uh, to to the rule. I think if you had looked the day after the 2016 election, you might have expected him to be kind of the clear uh, leader of this um, faction in the Democratic um, uh, base, um, and that hasn't materialized uh, yet uh, so far. Um, And it may be a sign that uh, some of his support uh, was, was based more on young people or people who wanted um, just something different uh, than, than they were being given from, from Hillary Clinton.
2: Another cut on this is public opinion versus elites. Something you were saying earlier in the podcast is that there's actually maybe some evidence that Democratic public is more liberal than the Republican public, but the elites are much more conservative as a movement and the Democratic elites are more group oriented and policy transactional. But, but I wonder if you're not seeing something similar here where certainly my impression is it the dynamic among what I would call democratic elites? And I think this is true um, in uh, in Congress. I think it's true in political consultants. I think it's true in media um, elites. There's been a big rise in left-leaning and much more ideological media in the past couple of years on on, on the democratic side. Is that the elites in the Democratic Party, both in their practice of politics and to some degree in their theory of politics, are getting a lot more ideologically liberal. Um, When I entered politics, you still had a lot of, uh, and began covering it, you still had a lot of influence of the DLC. And if you talk to members of the House and members of House leadership, you know, it's very much like the lessons of the Clinton era. And you had to see if you could win Georgia, um, which now you're seeing, you know, can you win Georgia, but it's a very different view of how you might win Georgia than how Bill Clinton thought about potentially winning Georgia. And so I wonder if even is. Uh, some of the evidence you're providing here is really about the public. And I I do not see a huge amount of evidence the Democratic public has moved way to the left. But it does seem to me that Democratic Party elites have moved quite far towards being a much more ideologically united coalition. And that there are other sort of force multipliers there around media and sort of the dynamics of ide- ideological Twitter and other things that make me wonder if we're not seeing something that seems to happen in the Republican Party where its actual organized echelons became much more. Ideologically unified and enforced that in in ways ranging from primaries to money to to kind of media probrium.
1: Well, there's uh, certainly real trends um, on the on the media side. You just you need to look at the you know MSNBC versus Fox News uh, ratings, and, and Fox News ratings are, are still going up, but uh, MSNBC's uh, have have risen uh, most dramatically uh, under under Trump, um, and and so it does signal uh, perhaps a desire uh, for um, a more kind of upfront uh, liberal perspective. Um, one thing cutting against that is that that the trust in the mainstream media has actually gone way up among Democrats as a reaction to, to Trump's attacks on it, um, which is kind of the opposite of what happened un, under Republicans. The the conservative media was self-sustaining because they said, you can't trust the mainstream media, you can only trust us. And, and so far, we're not seeing that uh, dynamic uh, on the Democratic uh, side. Um, in terms of the, the elites in Congress and, and their perceptions, uh, certainly, there a shift uh, since uh, the the Clinton age uh, in terms of levels of concern for uh, being uh, too economically liberal in their uh, policy proposals. It is a little bit hard to to, uh, compare over time uh, economic liberalism or or social liberalism, in in part because policy uh, tends to move more liberal uh, over time, uh, more often uh, than it moves conservative over time, Uh, and that means that uh, by some uh, definition. Uh, the, the Democrats are, are kind of always proposing new things uh, for government to do or new social changes uh, for policy to, to codify. Uh, and so in, in some ways, that that is kind of an inevitable uh, a liberal movement. Um, but there's no question that uh, the, the democratic elites who used to really fear, uh, say, a, a McGovern uh, or uh, a 1984 uh, blowout and see the route to, to, to redemption as being uh, moderating on both both economic and social dimensions uh, don't uh, agree with that perspective, even though we're still having that debate today.
2: So this, to me, gets to something that is in your book that strikes me as one of the really profound differences in the internal dynamics of the parties. Uh, You were talking a minute ago about the way in which Democrats trust a pretty broad array of media sources. They trust the New York Times and the BBC and the Guardian and NBC, and they don't disproportionately uh, prefer ideological outlets, like, say, MSNBC in this case. Um, whereas Republicans, if you look at what they trust in the media, it's Fox News, Conservative Talk Radio, Breitbart. They're like incredibly clustered around a certain set of, of highly ideological outlets. And then similarly, Republicans are quite distant from academia, um, whereas Democrats have, you know, very very much embraced the, the kind of culture and institutions of academia. And having the party trust two sets of institutions that I think are, in general, try to be truth seeking. Um, You know, I'm not saying the media gets it right all the time, but I think the media and academia both have a lot of internal and I'm talking about the mainstream media, um, a lot of internal processes and cultural and even professional incentives to push against things that Maybe our work within the ideology, but don't feel true to them. Um, whereas the Republican Party, the the information sources feel much more aligned with the with the kind of ideological dynamics. And that, if I were to pick anything that explains the difference between the two parties, I, I would. I would pick that. But can you lay out some of that evidence and, and, and what you think its downstream implications are? Well, yes, I, I would say it, it, it could explain more of the
1: change than other aspects, because it really is something uh, that, that has changed over time. That is, it was always the case that Republican elites uh, were more distrustful of the mainstream media and academics to be independent arbiters of, of truth between the parties. Uh, but it really took a long time uh, for them to, to m- make their uh, Republican electorate share those views, uh, and now they they do to a very large extent, um, and as I said, the, the uh, trends are actually in the opposite direction uh, among Democrats. Uh, so it, it has been a big change, um, but uh, it obviously grew out of uh, Republican elites' uh, resistance to uh, both journalism and um, academia, we should say, have always been disproportionately composed uh, of liberals compared to the American public, and so they had sort of more of a reason uh, to uh, suspect that they wouldn't get a fair hearing from those two uh, institutions. Um, but uh, over the last uh, 50 years, they've really translated that into an ideological opposition uh, to uh, those institutions having any kind of, of independent, objective, uh, uh, arbitrating role, uh, and uh, in the process, built up a series of uh, institutions uh, that uh, are designed to replace them, both conservative media and then we uh, tell a story about the rise of, of conservative think tanks at the elite level um, as sort of replacing academic research uh, and uh, kind of causing uh, what used to be liberal leaning but uh, but trying to be nonpartisan uh, institutions uh, into to being sort of their uh, liberal ideological uh, opponents uh, and so both of those two uh, big changes in American politics uh, that stem from uh, a conservative uh, elites uh, resistance to, to mainstream uh, institutions uh, certainly have had uh, profound uh, effects on American politics um, and and I think uh, to to our to our point, um, make it make it difficult for for Democrats to go through the same kind of of transition.
2: Here is my question about this. So, it is clearly true looking at these institutions as they exist now that Republicans are clustered around ideological media and contemptuous many times, I would say, of academic institutions in and Democrats are not. I think the the initial rebuttal you get on this is, look, the media is liberal. And I think that it is largely true that the mainstream media is composed of people who are liberal and vote Democratic to the extent they vote. And academia is liberal. And I think that's true, too. These are strange institutions in that they might be composed of liberals, but they don't want to be liberal. And to the extent they feel they're being perceived that way, they actually end up um, putting into play responses to try to move in the other direction. My question for you is, is this. I can understand why Republicans and conservatives rejected institutions that they felt didn't represent them. What I don't really understand is why they didn't build equivalent institutions to represent them. Um, I remember Tucker Carlson getting up and saying the right needs a New York Times. And then he started The Daily Caller. And whatever you want to say about The Daily Caller, I would say, did not become the rights version of The New York Times. And similarly, you know, you don't have like a profusion of Wall Street Journal like sources. You have this rise of Breitbart and, you know, things of the Federalist and things of that nature. And so why isn't the demand there, right? I don't I'm not surprised by there being different institutions or people wanting representation in these in these very, very powerful institutions. But in a way, that doesn't seem to have happened on the Democratic side as much. Republicans seem to have like they've like rejected some of the underlying principles, not just the idea that the specific institutions were stacked with people who didn't agree with them.
1: Well, absolutely, but I think that's based in their in their different vision of, of politics. So, if if you uh, just need a, an information source uh, to to evaluate different policy proposals to uh, achieve uh, specific ends, and, and you think that one is biased, you you might create another one uh, to to do the same thing. Um, but that's not what Republicans are, are in the project of doing. They're in the project of, of promoting a vision of the way the role that government should should serve in, in society uh, and the the direct of social change and a kind of a restorative uh, project um, that that doesn't require uh, those same kind of uh, informational uh, institutions um, and when you're trying to appeal to the Republican public um, that is is not again very focused on, on detailed uh, policy proposals but instead um, sees uh, America as engaged in in kind of a, a life or death uh, battle to uh, retain uh, its kind of, best and unique status in the world, um, that's going to get a different kind of, of media coverage um, than, uh,
2: than one that appeals to Democrats. I, I sort of get that and I and I, I think I sort of don't. So I mean, I've looked at a lot of this psychological research about what happens when you put Democrats and Republicans in, you know, basically in a lab or on a survey, and you give them ideological or partisan information about what they're seeing. And on an individual level, Democrats and Republicans don't look very different. I mean, Democrats are very happy to switch their opinion if they think that they're the people they ideologically follow have switched their opinion. They're happy to kind of rate the trustworthiness of experts by whether or not those experts end up agreeing with them, and so I would expect if the theory you're offering is right to see that brought down to the individual level a little bit more often. That there's just kind of a a difference in how much people think truth serves their needs. But I just don't see that. So I'm curious what the you know what the evidence is of it for you because there's nothing in being more ideological versus being more policy oriented that would necessarily make you less concerned about you know what are the what 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 are the true facts of an issue?
1: Well, I, I don't want to review the the, the full literature because there's a, there's sort of big psychological debates about uh, this is a podcast. Review all the literature, yeah, <laughs> the extent to which uh, D- Democrats and Republicans uh, or, or liberals and conservatives uh, are, are different. Um, just two quick points I would make about it is that they're they're often comparing liberals and conservatives, which is not quite the same thing as Democrats and Republicans. So they often leave out uh, the, the the least ideological uh, Democrats, um, but um, it. it it is certainly true uh, that if you uh, ask policy oriented questions of Democrats and Republicans uh, and you um, sort of give them different pieces of information, um, they will both uh, try to gravitate toward those that already support their views um, and they will uh, evaluate uh, sources of information on the basis of congruence with what they they already um, believe. Um, but I don't think uh, that that necessarily addresses um, the, the question of what kinds of information source uh, Republicans uh, and Democrats uh, seek uh, in the wild, or, or why they might uh, seek those, um, and I think there is uh, quite a bit of evidence of, of longstanding differences uh, in how Republicans and Democrats uh, see the world uh, and uh, see the, the place of, of politics in it, uh, and that that uh, does uh, mean uh, that they uh, tend to gravitate toward in different information sources. But I think. Even if it's only a small difference uh, at first, it's one that the information sources that they're given uh, tend to amplify. So um, you know everything that you hear, if you listen to Rush Limbaugh for hours a day or Sean Hannity, uh, uh, reflects uh, that that vision that is at least assumed to appeal uh, to Republican voters. Um, And uh, over time, uh, they begin to see the world uh, more in the ways that Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity do, Uh, and. Democrats don't have those uh,
2: sources uh, and don't uh, change their opinions to match that perspective. And and so one thing that's interesting about that is it it seems to me that there are two stories you can tell here. One is an institutional path-dependent story that, you know, for whatever reason – Maybe it was a liberalism of academia and journalism, wh- whatever it might have been. Republicans just kind of got off the train and then ended up following Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly and Fox News, and you know, and the, we
1: we are mostly on that side, to, to be clear. We're mostly because oh, really? that side is not what I'm that,
2: understanding from that,
1: you. That it's a that it's an institutional uh, a story and that it was amplified uh, by uh, by the institutions that were built by the right. But I just don't want to leave out uh, the the possibility that there are kind of inherent differences between liberals or conservatives, and I definitely don't want to leave. About the idea that the Republican Party is just more uniformly people who think of politics in terms of ideology and that those two things do provide a basis uh, for uh, the Republican institutions to develop
2: different well let me push back on the on the institutional story if that's one you're mainly on the side of because that's a story I sort of want to tell in certain ways it, it's a story that makes the most sense to me given that I tend to see the the two sides as reasonably similar on the individual level given the, the research I've read there but it does not then explain why there's never been a Democratic Rush Limbaugh. It doesn't explain why Fox News has over time just been wildly more successful in MSNBC. And it doesn't explain why Republicans didn't demand things that looked more like the things Democrats want. Right. Like, why is Republican talk radio, Republican talk radio and Democratic Radio's NPR, right, which is just like a news source that has, you know, probably a liberal worldview in certain ways, but is not in any way out there trying to do movement liberalism. Is your view that it just could have with a couple like key tweaks? You know, there never is a Rush Limbaugh or he decides to go into... You know, some other uh, profession, it just could have gone completely the other way, and we really do today have a Republican New York Times and Republican NPR, and things just look much more symmetrical.
1: Well, with talk radio specifically, I think that's a hard to tell story because we did have the Air America um, uh, alternative possibility that that w- did have uh, more enough resources to, to to try to gain an audience, and and really wasn't um, successful in in doing so. I, I do think it does get a little bit uh, back to the, the coalitions of the parties. I, I don't think that there. There's no audience uh, for something like a a liberal uh, talk radio and I think that's why you're seeing some online sources that can be quite successful um, without necessarily needing to kind of uh, be uh, mainstream uh, s- uh, sources uh, that that take uh, more of an approach that that matches traditional uh, conservative uh, approaches. Um, but I, I do think the Democratic coalition is, is quite diverse, so some in media consumption for example. You have obviously 40% of the Democratic electorate is racial minorities. Um, there are large media infrastructures designed specifically to reach uh, racial minorities and their uh, interests. Um, we have uh, Democrats uh, differ a lot in terms of their uh, uh, priorities uh, and uh, their demographics. Uh, and that means that, uh, that they're, in some ways, better served uh, by a, a more diverse media infrastructure than our Republicans.
2: So, the, this issue of diversity, I think, is an important one. Here, here's a story that is a little bit of an alternative story, particularly in. In, in the modern era, um to the one you're telling, but, but feels similar to me in, in in some ways, which is yes, Republican parties are, are an ideological party and Democrats sort of look like a group party. Um, but that the core difference between the two parties, the core ideology of the two parties actually now has to do with diversity. The Republican Party, you know, as Donald Trump has proven, is a party that is, um, as Ronald Brownstein calls it, the party of restoration, a, a party of people uncomfortable with the way America is changing. And that does ladder up into a kind of ideology. It's an ideology about what made America great at another point. It's a set of policy ideas about what you should and shouldn't do, like building a wall. And that for the Democratic Party, while it often looks from the outside like a coalition of groups, to the exact point you were making, it's actually got an ideology. It's why you see this huge rise in in women candidates and a sharp rise in non-white candidates. But that ideology increasingly is diversity. That ideology increasingly is that a diverse America is a better America. And that leads to other things like you should do more to care for people who, you know, are, you know, non-white or immigrants. And, you know, you should have universal health care. I mean, there are other things that layer on top of that, but that we actually now have two quite ideological parties. But The ideological divide really isn't small government, big government. In some ways, the small government, big government stuff is secondary to the diversity, non-diversity questions. And then it's just a kind of it's a nature of the of the thing that the more diverse coalition is going to look like and have a lot more groups than the less diverse coalition, but that doesn't make it less ideological. In some ways, having a view that a more diverse America is a better America and that demographic change is something to be celebrated and welcomed and um, you know spread through the political uh, power structure, is quite an ideological view.
1: That's certainly how uh, Democratic elites have traditionally reconciled uh, their the diversity of their uh, coalition, and it, I think in the in the public it's kind of hardest to tell that that view. We we looked um, in the open ended responses that that people give uh, for why they support one party or the other uh, for. For those kinds of, of statements about diversity, um, and you just see them a whole lot less frequently uh, than you see just more basic claims about the the Republican Party is for these people, the Democratic Party is 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 for the public. Um, the you don't see uh, the claims about the necessity of diversity uh, or about the the importance of egalitarianism or something that sounds like that any any more often uh, than you see just. Uh, basic pro-government stances, which is not very often uh, where people say, you know, government should have a role uh, in in society. So th- those are the, the kinds of ideological claims uh, that, that you see uh, among uh, left-party voters in some other countries that you don't see uh, among Democrats and that would more closely uh, mirror what you see uh, among Republican voters. Um, I think there's more of a case to be made that the Democratic coalition uh, kind of explicitly created uh, this uh, vision. Uh, of, of diversity uh, to, to kind of reconcile its its competing uh, uh, groups um, and has succeeded in at least making them not fight over uh, actual policy positions as often uh, even though they're s- uh, still fighting over what kinds of issues uh, should should be uh, prioritized I, I'm not sure uh, that uh, that means that they need to win uh, that that battle so if you're uh, a democratic politician thinking about what kind of message to, to to voters, um, it, it's it's always going to be easier to just sort of do a generic kind of people versus the powerful uh, kind of campaign uh, to talk specifically about how you're going to tax the rich uh, and how you're going to provide these specific benefits uh, that democratic voters want, uh, then to, to sell a, a broader vision that, that you're trying to implement a new role for government and society, or that you're trying to bring about uh, a new type of, of society uh, in the U.S. Uh, and I think, in some ways, the, the Hillary Clinton campaign uh was a, a diversion from the the democratic uh, mainstream uh, that that kind of showed up in the the way that voters conceptualized the campaign. She did in, emphasize diversity much more than uh, previous presidential, democratic presidential campaigns. And uh, particularly uh, racial and gender diversity, uh, and she was much less likely to to mention class uh, and to the, to talk about uh, po- politics as as class conflict. And that showed up in uh, the the way that people uh, reported uh, what they liked and disliked about the candidates. This uh, thing that Democrats have always the number one thing people have said they like about the Democrats has always been that they're the party of the middle class or the working class. And the number one thing people say they like about the dislike about the Republicans is that they're the party of the rich. And since you didn't hear that message coming from the Democratic presidential candidate last time, it also didn't show up as much among voters.
2: But this seems to me to be one of these questions where it's really important when we say Democrats and Republicans, are we talking about the party as a kind of coalition of policy demanders and elites and volunteers and like kind of intense, you know, partisans or just like anybody who might vote for the candidate? Because everything you're saying actually seems completely true to me. And yet, you know, I think Hillary Clinton had that message because that was the way for her to win the primary. And I, it is true that she was more explicit on this than Obama was, but I think Obama didn't need to be explicit on this in the same way because of who he was. And when you had a guy who looked like Barack Obama, the skinny guy with the big ears, with a funny name, standing up and talking about hope and change, and, you know, there's never been anything unlikely about hope in America, it was clear what he was discussing. Similarly, Donald Trump's reaction, that seems clear, and. I feel like one of the lessons of, of of the book for me is that party elites create politics. I don't think you would have as ideologically conservative a Republican Party if it was really about what the broad base of the country wants. I mean, as you say, the big knock on the Republican Party is that they're the party of the rich and still like huge tax cuts for rich people is what they do every single time. So it, it seems to me that, you know, as politics travels through that that defining mechanism of what are the, the party elites doing, that this feels to me to be increasingly what the ideological um, divide is. Is um, and obviously it has these other things too, but I, I guess that's my question for you. Do, do you think this is changing? Do you think that you know the way we described American politics in the twentieth century, which is this fight between big, like small government ideological conservatism and big government um, practical liberalism, is moving to become this fight over you know the, the 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 demographics of the country and how you feel about that apportionment of political power. Uh, I,
1: I think there, there are changes there is a rise uh, in, in social issues relative to, to economic issues uh, not because economic issues are, are becoming less important but because uh, social issues are, uh, are more important to young people and are becoming uh, more closely aligned with with partisanship um, uh, but I think we also should go back and evaluate that that vision of the, the 20th century uh, and and you know the historiography I don't think tells that that same story they have always told it as uh, being tied up up with with race as being tied up uh, with with social change uh, as being about uh, the the role of of religion versus other uh, versus new social institutions as being about the speed of of social change um, and it's always been true that the Republican elites have been more disproportionately focused on economics compared to the Republican base um, which has always been uh, more uh, attracted to the party on the basis of of a social uh, vision.
2: I feel like we slightly. Flip positions on. It. I agree with all that. What the the distinction I'm making from the 20th century, um, a little bit implicitly here, is that in the 20th century politics wasn't as organized around those cleavages because they didn't cut between the parties. I, I don't think. It was, I think it was not your book, but Jeffrey Capra Services' book on 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 rule and ruin about the fall of moderate Republicans, who makes a point that you know the civil rights act could have been understood as a Republican victory as well. It just wasn't because Barry Goldwater then ran against it, um, and that you know. When these fights were happening internal to the coalitions, politics didn't organize around them in the same way. They were suppressed because coalitions try to suppress um their disagreements. But now that they're organized between the coalitions, they're becoming much bigger. So, like I think America's 20th century politics are pretty fundamentally defined by by racial conflict. And that includes sort of how the New Deal is built and, and all kinds of other things. But we remember it as small government, big government, because that's what the parties were most comfortable fighting over. Now it seems to me to be that there are like actually quite a lot more comfortable fighting over diversity.
1: Uh, th- there's no question again that there's been a uh, change in the the relative emphasis of, of those dimensions uh, by party elites I think even though we put uh, lots of emphasis on the role of party elites in in creating the differences between the parties or reinforcing them I think we don't think it was uh, nearly as open as say as cpa service uh, does that is um, yes there were there were moderate Republicans but um, the, the chance that they had to, to win uh, in the in the party <laughs> that was organized uh, as it was was after the 1960s was was not uh, very likely um, and and to the same extent you know democratic elites uh, were reacting to their opportunities uh, in in the American electorate and to some extent those those opportunities have have changed uh, with with increasing diversification um, but that um, you know d- doesn't necessarily mean that that they can kind of build the party that they want um, uh, from from whole cloth It means that they have to kind of work within uh, the the incentives of their existing electorate
3: Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seed of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper-rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features, like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts, like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: So there's one more beat I want to make sure we cover here, which is the politics of policy versus the politics of purity. And in some ways, I think the strongest argument in your book um, is this idea that the Republican Party often runs its own political strategy and even its policy strategies very expressively um, to sort of show that it's truly against the things it says it is against. And it's shutting down the government and potentially breaching the debt ceiling and stopping Merrick Garland and, and on and on and on. And one reason it does not do compromise or even at this point internal cohesion very well is that it is about establishing that Republican Party leaders mean what they say, whereas the Democratic Party, because it's more policy-focused, is much more open to half a loaf and is much more concerned about shutting the government down and is much more sort of willing to make these compromises. And that seems to me to explain a lot about American politics and why the two parties can't bargain, because... If Republicans don't care that much about the policy, then Democrats going over to them being like, we'll give you a quarter of the policy if you give us 10 votes is not in general going to work. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, about what you think is the most compelling evidence that that is true? Well, first, I think it's it's based on
1: this uh, general pattern that that policy that's enacted tends to tends to be more likely to be liberal and conservative. It tends to expand the scope of government to, to new areas more often than than contracted and, and codify social change more often than uh, reverse it. Um, and that means that that Democrats are are sort of uh, always in a better position if if policy advances, uh, even. Uh, if they don't don't achieve their full vision, whereas kind of any action that's taken uh, might actually be worse uh, for conservatives uh, than than not doing anything. It's not that they don't have anything they want to do, but but if they can't get that, um, then then it might sound better uh, to to do less overall. And I, I certainly think you see the Republican uh, Congress um, sort of just having a, a smaller agenda of of achievable achievable items uh, than the Democrats. Whereas you know we, we talked we started by talking about all the proposals coming. In uh, the 2020 uh, primary, that do sound quite liberal, but when we start thinking about uh, trying to enact those in in 2021, I, I fully expect uh, the traditional Democratic patterns to to uh, return. Even if they have full control of Congress, that uh, they will uh, seek to to moderate uh, their proposals to to make sure something passes. They'll seek to incorporate uh, various interest group uh, demands and and uh, try to, to to pacify opposition um, because they'll. They'll want something uh, to to show for, uh, and and Republicans just don't have that, uh, that 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 same priority. It
2: always strikes me as a little bit weird, though, because it doesn't seem to me. I very much take your point that most policymaking that does happen is liberal, um, and 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 that that relates to the fact that in terms of actual policy, the American people are liberal more than they are um, in in terms of their philosophy. But Republicans often have the ability to get things that seem to me to relate to what they want. They just don't end up feeling it that way. So, you know, I think a really good version of this is, is taxes. The Republican Party has become so monomaniacal on taxes that they're not even able to take pretty good deals that would cut spending by a lot. I mean, you you bring up in the book that moment in the 2016 Republican primary debates, I think it was a Fox News debate, if I'm not wrong, where they said, you know, who on this stage would take a deal that cut $10 in government spending for every $1 in tax increase and nobody raised raised their hand or maybe one person did. I don't remember. But definitely none of the major candidates raised their hand. And that doesn't seem to me to be explained by most policy that happens is liberal, right? Like most policy that happens, you know, even liberal policy that happens tends to have a much worse ratio than that 10 to 1. So that that seems to me to be some other dynamic that is related to, I don't know, purity or philosophy or, 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 or something. But you could you know, like, to the extent conservatism has policy instantiations, you could, like, you're going to have to take those sort of, like, you get 60 or 75 percent approaches to, to getting them. It's just, I don't know, like, maybe do conservatives not really care about the the policy that follows downstream? Is like that? Is that not the motivation and the motivation is more philosophical and expressive? Like, what is... Why wouldn't they take a ten-to-one deal? So
1: I think it's it's part of that they don't care as much about the the outcomes as as Democrats. Uh, there there are longstanding psychological debates about individual differences in in aversion to, to compromise, and I, I think actually here most of the evidence does uh, support a, a more longstanding asymmetry between between liberals and and conservatives. Um, but of course, they also hear different messages from political elites and have for a very long time uh, about the the necessity. Of, of compromise and and when the elites do change, you do see some some changes. So there was a blip uh, where Democrats were more uh, averse to compromise uh, under Trump. That that seems to have returned a little bit to the the normal uh, pattern. So I think in in both cases, there's there's kind of a preexisting tendency and then uh, messages that that they they hear from elites. Um, one other thing I did want to answer was on the the kind of potential for compromise because I, I think people don't necessarily understand kind of what what the historical compromise. Was which is that uh, it, it was Democrats um, trying to achieve their goals uh, by kind of pre-compromising with what they thought were potential conservative objections. So American policy, compared to uh, every other country in the world, uh, uses uh, the the tax code more than direct spending. It tries to. Uh, Uh, make states and and localities in charge of implementation rather than central implementation. It tries uh, to uh, incorporate the private sector and market incentives. Uh, And so government has taken on a lot of new roles uh, under the liberal expansion of government, um, but it tends to have done it uh, through conservative means. Um, And although that never fully satisfied conservatives, there used to be more that would kind of go along with that project uh, that that would sort of pretend to Uh, be in the interest of of trying to kind of coax Democrats into moderating their uh, new big government proposals to make them uh, more consistent with conservative ideology. And we've sort of lost that potential for compromise as as Republicans have have shown themselves to to be less interested in it.
2: Uh, I think that is probably a good place to to wind down. So, um, Matt, let me ask you the, the question we always end with on the podcast, which is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you?
1: So I thought I'd go uh, with thematic history at the kind of intersection of our interests. Uh, so I'm going to recommend uh, Racial Realignment, The Transformation of American Liberalism uh, by Eric Schickler, uh, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of the American Consensus by Rick Perlstein, and Law and Order, Street Crime, Civil Unrest, and the Crisis of Liberalism by Michael Flam.
2: Matt Grossman, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Matt for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth in Berkeley. To Jeff Geld in DC, to Jillian Weinberger, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.